Hello, and welcome to Securing Sexuality, the podcast where we discuss the intersection of intimacy and information security. I'm Wolf Gorlick. He's a hacker. And I'm Stephanie Gorlick. She's a sex therapist, and together we're going to discuss what safe sex looks like in a digital age. And today, today we're talking about the wonderful world of web-enabled sex toys. And I am so excited because of the web-enabled part. We're going to geek out a little bit on some tech, which I'm very happy about. So yes, ladies and gentle thems, it is Teledildonics Day on Securing Sexuality. Yay! Everybody's favorite fascinating <laughs> subject. So tell me about this term, first off. Where did this term come from? Uh, you know, that is in and of itself a huge question. The, the term teledildonics was actually coined all the way back in 1975 by a man named Ted Nelson, um, who wrote a book called Computer Lib. And computer lib was the first time when um, we heard this term used, and it was, you know, really cool, kind of like self-published zine style. Um, and he introduced the, to the term to the world. But then, you know, fast forward into, you know, the 2000s, and we have phenomenal researchers like Trudy Barber, who take that a step further and, and introduce the term technosexuality. So teledildonics is simply, you know, Wi-Fi enabled dildonics, sex toys. Technosexuality, on the other hand, is um, the term that Trudy Barber ascribes to people who actually incorporate technology into their sexuality, into their sexual orientation. Somebody who has, you know, a sexual desire for or attraction to um, robots, for example, might identify as a technosexual. And then about 10 years after that, um, we have Marky Twist and Neil MacArthur, also researchers who refine this once again and talk about digisexuality, which kind of encompasses both the teledildonics, you know, the actual toys, devices, and tech, and the erotic or amorous attraction piece that Trudy Barber recognized under one broader umbrella of digisexuality. So we have teledildonics, the toys, the devices themselves, technosexuality, people who incorporate technological devices or, or um, technologies into their sexual identity and practices, and digisexuality, which kind of encompasses all of these and more as technology advances. The, the digi side is one of the things that's interesting to me because it seems like, and you know, you're the historian here, so you correct me where I'm wrong, but it seems like early days, 1975 to say 2000, there was much more of a focus in on interactivity. There's much more of a focus in on the whole body. Uh, I know there's a lot of conversation around, you know, building dolls and, and, and all that sort of stuff. Whereas in recent years, it seems to all have been simplified down to just the toy, right? And we, we had the full body experience. Now we're just talking about the part. I agree. And I think a part of that is because technology itself has come so far. I mean, we'll talk about sort of the full body suits of the 90s. But a part of why those were necessary was simply because that was what the technology required. Whereas now, in the same way that, you know, we see those memes of 50 different electronic devices that we used to have in the 80s that are all now contained in our iPhones, 
the same is true for a lot of sex tech as well. A lot of the the individual tools that we would have needed to achieve a certain experience or sensation are integrated now. And so that means that devices become smaller um, and also to a certain extent, a little bit less immersive, I guess you could say. Yeah, it does definitely feel a little bit less immersive, um, especially if I look at like the, you know, early 90s where they had these full suits and whatnot and there was um there was that one demo that uh, was out there too you're telling me about and this was a video you've showed at conferences that was what 93 i think yeah 93 uh stall sensley and kirk wolford created a cyber sm suit which um i will post a link to the video in the show notes it is a remarkable contraption. It totally looks exactly like what people in the 90s would envision cyber sex to require. And looking at it now in 2022, it looks a clunky. It looks a little um, ridiculous, one might say. But at the time, it was the height of technology. And in a lot of ways, that speaks to kind of what we're talking about in the way that devices have shrunk as technology and technological advances um, become more integrated, become smaller, become more smart. And what was what was the two people's names again? Stahl, S-T-A-H-L, Stensley, S-T-N-S-L-I-E, and Kirk Wolford. So Stahl was the artist. Kurt was the programmer. Um, and, uh, and all right, I'm going to geek out just a little bit. Just a little bit. So the hardware requirements for this thing was a little bit amazing. Um, Kurt wrote all the code on uh, the Macintosh platform. So I think early 90s Macintosh, we're just into like the, the you know, three and a quarter floppy disks. The, uh, the experience was immersive, which meant a 16-inch CRT monitor. So we had this Macintosh with this big... CRT monitor to power it. It was using new Vista cards. So um, these were True Vision video cards. If you think about the most expensive video gaming card out there today, like double or triple the cost, and that's what these were. They were on a new bus uh, chassis, so it was a very, very cool video setup for the time, very ahead of it. So these are really expensive stations. Um, and to communicate, uh, what was going on in these sensor suits, these weird, uh, interesting suits, to communicate that between cities, uh, we were looking at ISDN, so traditional ISDN networks, which is uh, like, it's similar like a dial-up modem in a way, if you want to think about it that way, but effectively we're making a phone call um, and then communicating over a, a blazing 128 kilobits, uh, which meant you couldn't really send much. I think you could like, sent certain signals, but it was very far from, from immersive, uh, but quite, quite the cool setup, quite the cool setup. The, any gamer kid in the 90s would have, like, <laughs> given his left arm for the setup. And, you know, I said that the aesthetic, the, the actual device itself looked a little clunky, a little ridiculous, but they were also cognizant of the aesthetics of it. And, and you know, Stahl Stensley said that 
Cyber SM was based on um, sadomasochistic role-playing. And he acknowledged that VR equipment has always looked similar to SM fashion. So when we look at it and compare it to, let's say, an Oculus mask, you know, from a pure just like technology perspective, we can go, wow, that's that's a lot there, man. But when you look at it compared to perhaps, you know, a, a well-constructed corset or to... Um, uh, a really nicely done shibari tie, the ropes and the harnesses and all of the accoutrement that go with the Cyber SM make a little bit more aesthetic sense, even if to our eyes now they seem a, a little a little out of date. And I think that's one of the things that has, has been lost. There was a tweet flying around that said, people who are alive today forget that computers used to be beautiful. There's a lot more, well, especially if you have an artist working on it, but there's a lot more attention to the uh, the look, the feel, the colors uh, in, in computing in the 90s, as we weren't really sure what these things were going to be. And, and if you go back even earlier to like 1960s and 70s, oh man, I love those early computers and the switches and the colors and the blinking lights. Um, really cool stuff, really cool stuff. And, and you know, we've given up a certain degree of that for our, our gray rectangles. But um, can you can you bridge us from, from the past to the present? I mean, are there any other steps along the way besides, hey, we named the term. They do this, uh, this test in the 90s. What else is, is going on to get us to where we are today? You know, I, I think we have to to acknowledge sort of the evolution of material science, right? I've been focusing, you're, you're the tech guy. You can talk about the the um, modems and the transmission of data between users and all of that stuff. But I look at it and go, ooh, that's pretty or ooh, that's clunky. So, you know, for me as a non-technologist, I'm curious about the aesthetics, about the creation of it. And a, a big part of that is looking at how materials have been used in sex toys and, you know, it, sex dolls, for example, robots, since we're talking about digisexuality, um, how those materials have evolved over time. We think about the 60s, um, if you go all the way back to, you know, the stag era that we've talked about sooner, you think about ads in the backs of, of pulp magazines, um, we all are familiar with the the cliche of the blow-up doll, the inflatable sex doll, right? They are staples in raunchy comedies. They are bachelor favor or bachelor party favors. They're they're just kind of a running joke now. But back um, after the development of plastics, that was an incredibly innovative thing to be able to have a plastic partner. Unfortunately. <laughs> Um, as anybody that's ever bought their child an inflatable toy at a parade or, or the circus knows, those things pop very easily. So it might have been this incredible use of modern materials to create the, the PVC blow-up doll, but they weren't durable. They weren't <laughs> functional, really. They certainly weren't aesthetically pretty. I will um, post some pictures in the show notes of sort of the classic blow-up doll vibe. And, and they're not what I would call arousing. But that at the time, plastic was new. 
And it was an incredible sort of idea. From there, we move into foam and the the sort of creation of injection foam and all of that good stuff. And that led to a, a, I'm going to say, higher quality, you know, relative to the balloon dolls of the 60s. But by the 70s and early 80s, you could get dolls that were made out of the same foam that you might find in your couch cushions or the Barca lounger. And that gave the user a different feel. You know, they were heavier, so they were a little bit more lifelike in that respect. They were denser, so they were a little bit more durable in that respect. We were moving a little bit closer to a facsimile of reality, but still nowhere near what what we have today. Um, I... <laughs> I love the foam dolls whenever I am able to find pictures of them. Foam, as we know, breaks down really easily. Most people are not sitting on their couches from the 70s for a reason. And so where you can find pictures of them, you know, the poor things are cracked, they're splitting, they're yellow. These are not devices that aged well. And so they are a little bit harder to find from an archival perspective. But that leap from inflatable PVC to, you know, injection molded foam was a big technological leap. Then material science really takes off. We start in bringing silicone into things. It's a little bit more flesh-like. I'm not saying flesh-light. I'm saying flesh-like, right? It's got that give of skin. It's a little bit softer. It's a little bit more realistic. It's a lot more durable. And so by the 90s and early 2000s, um, sex dolls are going more high-end. And we're seeing the same thing happen in other sex toys, where the switch from sort of those jelly, plastic, squishy, phthalate-laden, toxic toys are starting to be replaced with medical-grade silicone. That enters the scene, which is great from a sex therapy, you know, sexual health and wellness perspective, I want people to avoid using toys that are going to leach toxic chemicals around mucosal membranes. So hooray for medical grade silicone. And that really becomes the big innovation. And from there, we see that integration of this, this amazing, safe, durable, sensual material being integrated into technologies as the actual, you know, engines, um, robotics, uh, the buzzy things that you can explain way better than I can, the mechanisms of toys start to be integrated in with the silicone. And so we start to get a higher quality toy, a higher quality doll, um, more useful, more realistic. We're starting to bridge that uncanny valley. And then by the 2000s, you know, Real Doll and Realbotics enters the scenes and they just kind of take it and run with it. And now, you know, as, as a sex therapist, I try to keep up on the latest technologies because my clients are using them and asking me about them and wanting to know about them. And things just progress so rapidly these days that it's almost difficult to stay on top of sex tech development. But throughout all of it, that, that sort of overarching theme of what materials are being used and how can they be molded and shaped in order to be useful to the user and to have a function that feels pleasurable, realistic, and also is safe 
has been a huge um, piece of sort of the technological arc for our teledildonics over the last, we'll say, 40 years. Well, and I think that's the last part you said about safe is a really good point. I think that's sort of my cue to start talking about uh, the security aspects of some of these things. Because when we think about safe, safe in terms of materials, absolutely, like you just covered, but safe in terms of that connection. One of the things that's interesting is if we go back to that 1993 CyberSM experiment, um, I mentioned we've got uh, we've got a suit, right? And that suit is hardwired into an Apple Macintosh. And that Apple Macintosh is running purpose-built software. And it's calling over a, uh, a modem across uh, Europe. This was done between uh, France and, and Germany. So calling across Europe to another modem, to another Apple Macintosh, to another suit. Now, what's interesting about that from a from a security perspective, and I'll start breaking this down in just a minute. But what's interesting about that is, I've got um, I've got family who still lives in the country, right? I've got family who still lives in in uh, in very rural areas, and I'm thinking of one in particular. They don't even have locks on their doors, and that always seems weird. Like, how, how do you not lock your door? What are you doing? But they don't even have locks in their doors. Why? Because there's not a lot of people around. There's not a lot of criminals around. There's not a lot of concern to, to have that. And if we think about this connection I just mentioned, uh, back then, there weren't a lot of people who would uh, either, A, be aware of how to you know, hack an ISDN system and, and mess with this uh, this relationship that was happening between uh, two people on two computers on two different countries on, on the European continent. Uh, and, and B, even within the set of people who, who were aware of it, there wasn't like a lot of motivation, right? I mean, this is a point in time where a lot of the hacking was uh, for curiosity or was trying to get intellectual property, you weren't necessarily going to mess with it. So we have we have the fact that there's not many people on it. We're not going over the public internet. We have the fact that a lot of the connection is hardwired. Hardwired is always harder to, to access. And even though um, I went back in preparation for this and I read like the, the NIST article, so NIST writes a lot of security stuff, uh, and guidance for, for uh, the U.S. I read the original NIST guidance, and this is like, yeah, ISDN. Um, not really designed for security. <laughs> oh, but even though it wasn't, um, there wasn't a, a lot of exposure because there wasn't a lot of people who were trying to mess with this stuff. So that is something that I have concerns about as a clinician. I will say, you know, the, the, my doors aren't locked in the country sort of mindset tends to be what I see most in, in my clients who use these toys. We don't think a lot about what could happen if somebody walks in the door. I think a lot of my users don't even necessarily think about the idea that sex tech has a door that should be or could be locked. And I'm curious, you know, there are some 
stories that have come out. I know last year, some um, BDSM practitioners who were using Bluetooth enabled cot cages had those hacked and had their their devices, more specifically the content within their devices, held for ransom. And as a clinician, you know, I am comfortable asking my clients, are you aware of these risks? But I don't necessarily know how to describe those risks for them or how to tell them practical steps they can take to mitigate those risks. And so I love the idea that the metaphor of, you know, the, the, the country backdoor, because the people that are using these technologies feel very safe and very private in their homes and in their spaces. And I don't necessarily know that they're aware of the fact that they're, that their doors are unlocked. So if we were to like take this example that we were talking about the cyber SM, right? A person hardwired to a computer, the computer talking uh, great distances to another computer that's hardwired to another person in their suit. We're to break that up. Let's say, let's break it up. And maybe this is the wrong term. You you need to inform me. Let's let's break it up. But like the person receiving the pleasure and the person sending the pleasure is that okay terms? Is there a better term I should use there? I like that. I think sending and receiving pleasure makes a lot of sense. I mean, ideally, that's what we're wanting from these experiences. Um, what feels pleasurable might vary from person to person. But for the purposes of our conversation, I think that's a great shorthand to use. All right. So the, the receiver of pleasure in this scenario, they're going to have a device. And it's going to be made out of uh, medical grade silicone, like you're mentioning. So we've got some some safety properties there. It's going to be talking Bluetooth to your cell phone. I think your point about the meme was really well said because almost everything is in our cell phones right now. Um, so Bluetooth LE or low energy to our cell phone. Uh, and that cell phone is going to be talking to the nearest Wi-Fi and that Wi-Fi is out on the Internet. So let's let's break apart just that and then we'll get to like the sending and where we can go from there. Um, first thing is. A lot of these devices uh, are made by manufacturers who don't necessarily have a security team, don't necessarily have a uh, you know a QA team. Uh, they produce some some great little uh, software, but it's oftentimes using off-the-shelf kits. So it's very common that the device itself uh, will have communication ports open that it shouldn't. We'll have uh, developer interfaces that open that it shouldn't. Uh, why? Because we, we grabbed something that worked and we wrapped it in this package with this medical grade silicone and, and we shipped it. And now it's talking Bluetooth. So what does that mean? That means in your example earlier with, uh, with the cage, that if someone can get into this device, they can... Um, you know, they can, if someone can connect to this device, they can take action on it. In the Bluetooth world, there are secure ways to do Bluetooth and there are not so secure ways to do Bluetooth. And it's not uncommon for this not to be secure. One of the interesting uh, things that was going on around, I think it was about four years ago now, was people could, using uh, Bluetooth radios, walk into a room and know if anyone had one of these devices. So you have privacy concerns there. Know if anyone had any of these devices. 
um, and turn them on, unauthenticated. So I can just walk in and turn on all the devices. Uh, not necessarily a good situation. So the first thing we need to do is secure that communication or be aware of the fact that there's risk of uh, insecure communication between the phone and the toy itself. Um, and if you're in a public spot, that can lead to problems. The second area of concern is on the phone itself, the, the type of apps that are used. Um, are they tracking? We've, we've done conversations and, and uh, podcasts before about everything that a phone can track. But imagine all that same data um, is being gathered and is now being uh, collected and sent somewhere. Uh, that can create some risks. So we've got some exposure on the app itself. And then finally on the Wi-Fi, um, back to back to the ISDN conversation. Very few people back then were looking at ISDN phone calls, um, let alone able to jump in the middle and intercept those. Uh, unless you were like a nation state or doing something, you know, um, rather sophisticated for the time. But with Wi-Fi, we've all heard the concerns about Wi-Fi at an airport, Wi-Fi at a uh, coffee shop, because there's so many different ways that our network traffic can be intercepted and acted on. So the other thing is, if you're at a coffee shop with one of these phones, uh, phone apps, and that phone app is talking to a toy, be aware that there's the potential that someone at that coffee shop is able to know that traffic is able to know what's going on there. I think just for the person receiving pleasure, those are your big areas of concern. Who can talk to, who can see the traffic that's coming from my phone and who can see the traffic, Bluetooth traffic that's going from my phone to the device and does that device protect that traffic to the phone? So how does that translate over for the everyday user? How does somebody who can listen to your explanation and understand it but not necessarily apply it, act on it. Does that make sense? Because I, I can hear everything you're saying. I can follow everything you're saying. But if I were to take everything I just heard, hold a Bluetooth-enabled vibrator in my hand and say, I need to make this safer, I don't, what action steps can you're, I take? You're spot on. That's one of the big problems with the, the entire Internet of Things universe, um, and specifically the Internet of Things with these types of toys one of the big problems is is that there isn't much we can do about it it's really uh, a problem area because it's not like you can go oh well then i'll just put a, a stronger password on my toy well a lot of these toys don't have the ability to put on a password so i think at the most basic uh, just for the person sent or receiving the sensation um, at the most basic. Really, what you need to do is is do it from the privacy of your house, right? This is the this is the back to the go to the country where the criminals aren't. Be very cognizant of when and where you use these things because right now there's not a lot that we can do. Um, so that's for the toy itself. For the app itself, this gets back to everything we talked about previously. Look at the privacy settings of the app make sure that it's not disclosing uh, your location 
Uh, there was a, a whole class action lawsuit against toy manufacturers uh, a couple years ago because these apps did not have good privacy policies. So, um, you know, the things that Cat Code has talked to us about and others apply directly to these apps as well. It's fascinating. Yeah, and a little bit disturbing because you would want a, a better experience, I would imagine, and more control. And there isn't a lot of control over these things. And it's similar to um, the the person who's sending the pleasure, which they may have their own app and their own phone, again, using Wi-Fi. Um, are you on a public Wi-Fi? Uh, if so, be aware that someone can see that, someone can use it. Everything I just mentioned around that mobile uh, phone app itself still comes into play. Um, how we connect the sender to the receiver, I'll get to in a minute. But effectively, it's a very similar uh, attack surface for the person who's sending. Check the phone, make sure the privacy settings are in place, um, and wherever possible, you're going to want to use your own Wi-Fi. I think that that, you know, that illusion of control, that illusion of power is a part of the appeal of these toys, right? Like the example I gave of the Bluetooth enabled cock cages are sexy to the wearer because they know somebody else controls when they come off or when they are locked down. Uh, the appeal of a Bluetooth enabled vibrator is being able to hand over the illusion of control to your partner on the other side of the app. I say illusion because we can always leave that toy on the bed and be watching, you know, Game of Thrones in the living room while it buzzes away by itself. The the person sending the pleasure doesn't actually control what the user or the receiver is doing with it. So it is an illusion of control. And I think that's part of what makes the idea of somebody interfering with that so scary because it takes away the playful consent-based, I'm letting you drive for a minute. And instead, it's almost like somebody hijacking your car, right? All of a sudden, it's not an illusion of control. Somebody else absolutely has interfered with our relationship or our intimacy information. And we don't have an agreement with them about how that or when that's going to be used. And that's a very different form of control that can feel very violating very quickly. It, it absolutely can. And when I go back to that cyber SM example, heck, when I go back to the uh, infrastructure guidance from NIST on how to secure the um, ISDN lines, a lot of it is secured by location, physical access control. So if I can't get to the Macintosh that's wired into that suit that the person's in, I, I can't mess with it. If I can't get into uh, the data center room where my ISDN lines are, I can't mess with it. And therefore, we can say that we've got a degree of access controls. And so we can, we can sort of say we've got that in the sending and receiving example I gave. If we're doing it from our own privacy of our home, uh, we don't have to worry about someone who's observing that Bluetooth information or turning the device off or on or anything else. We don't have to worry about someone who's potentially observing that Wi-Fi information and deducing that the sender may be uh, sending information. So we, we do have a degree of physical control. 
But where the situation gets more concerning is the fact that both of these are talking over the internet. And what's it talking to? It's usually talking to uh, a, a web server, the same web server we throw into every web browser and bring it up, that same thing, that same sort of web interface, but also uh, APIs or interfaces meant just for devices, just for the things themselves. So in this scenario, when the person is, is sending pleasure and the person is receiving pleasure, it's not like the cyber SM example where the two Macintoshes with the two suits were talking directly uh, between France and Germany. In this case, the person sending the pleasure is actually talking to a web server and the person receiving the pleasure is talking to that web server and that web server is brokering information. So another class of, of vulnerabilities and risks about this is that web server itself is how the applications are built, is how the applications are, are presented. Um, one of the interesting things that, uh, that we've seen in other cases, like the Ashley Madison example, is um, can I determine if someone has a account on this? So you might imagine if I know someone's using one of these toys, um, I could go ahead and say, okay, do they have an account? Okay, yeah, I, I figured they would because I know they have one of these toys by looking at their email address or what have you. Uh, but what might also be interesting is, can I see it, who else has an account, right? Um, do they have an account with a coworker? Do they have an account with uh, a friend that they're perhaps a little bit too chatty with on social media? Um, you know, you can start to observe behaviors and start to poke at these web servers and expose information. So I know what you're going to ask me, Wolf, that's great, but what, what can I do about this? Uh, because I'm not a programmer. Uh, I'm assuming that's what you're going to ask me. I mean, that's usually what I ask you. <laughs> I, I, I come up with um, fascinating conversations about sex and intimacy, and then I ask you, baby, what do we do about it? That, that's that's That you. is our jam. So this is, this is something that we can tell any of your clients, which is if you are using one of these devices, not only do it at home, we already covered that, um, be aware that you're taking additional risk in public. Maybe that's exciting, I don't know, but be aware that risk exists. But when you register, when you set it up, this gets back to using disposable email addresses. You don't wanna link this to your day-to-day -day email address. You definitely don't wanna link it to your corporate email address, There's uh, there are folks who look into this and you'd be surprised at how many corporate email addresses that they find, uh, how many people in the military that they find. So make sure that you're using one of these disposable email addresses like, uh, what are some of the ones you recommend today? Do you... I am a big fan of ProtonMail right okay. now. That's my go-to that I recommend to my clients. I'm sure there are others and um, your world would know more about them than I do. But coming out of the world of domestic violence, sexual assault, we always recommended Proton Mail to, to our clients and our survivors. So my new toy at Proton Mail is, is what you'd want, not me at my work.com. <laughs> it's really, when, when we're looking at just the basics of how to secure yourself and protect yourself, that's that's the takeaway. Now we'll dig deeper into this, but I hope at least that's laid out some of the risks that exist 
between the person sending, the person receiving, and of course the, the great wide internet that's in between it all. It does. That has really been helpful. What else should our listeners know before venturing out into the big wide world of teledildonics and, and connective sex toys? Um, I think today there really is no, now today being when we record this in 2022, because there are certainly organizations that are working to fix this, but there really is no safe way to do this. So when you were talking about material science and how we had that progression to safe silicone, we are not at the safe silicone uh, level for the silicon, right? <laughs> for the for the technology itself, there is no safe way to do it. So have fun, uh, but just be aware that you're taking risks and as much as possible, try to control those risks um, with with good privacy policies, dedicated email addresses with giving yourself space. And don't forget to password protect your home router and your home wireless system before you plug in your new toys. Absolutely. So as we wrap up, um, you know, you do a lot with your clients in terms of, of these toys. How are, how are they being used? What is, was the perspective of um, you know this beyond just the fact that I'm really excited about Bluetooth and and Wi-Fi and internet traffic? W tell me about the relationship side of things and and some of the things that they should be aware of, uh, both from a let's have fun perspective and also from a here's how to protect yourself perspective. So in terms of, you know, physical protection and safety, please avoid jelly toys. I realize that um, medical grade silicone toys, stainless steel, glass are more expensive, but they are not porous and they are not going to leach toxic chemicals into mucosal membranes. So please buy investment quality toys, everyone. It's, it's um, unfair the markup on these things. That's why um, I think that sex therapists should get wholesale accounts and, and make these toys available at cost to their clients. But failing that, it's better to save up and buy one high quality toy than it is to buy 10 that are going to cause damage to your body. That is the practical side. On the sort of emotional side, pay attention to how these toys are being used in your life and in your relationships. One of the things that's been most fascinating for me as I've, you know, done the the work around my my um, sex toy research and my 10,000 years of cyber sex research has been in looking at how humanity over time has engaged with the materials that we sexualize, right? Like if we go all the way back to caveman days with with Paleolithic people taking clay and molding figures out of clay that were erotic or sexual or um, celebrating fertility, anything connected to the body and the intimate. That was humanity working with a passive material in order to shape it into what we needed it to be in a given moment. And eventually time and technology, you know, we, we were able to paint portraits and we were able to carve statues and we were able to take photographs. 
And we had this sort of static image that we didn't necessarily make ourselves, but that we could look at um, like looking in a mirror or like looking at a reflection of our aspirational desires and, and use those to inform our sexuality. Um, what fascinates me as a sex therapist is the point in time when that no longer became a passive action, when it no longer became a, an individual person alone with something sexy, spiritual, or erotic, when it became two people able to talk to each other across time and space, right? I love, love Betsy Craddock, our first phone sex operator, because she really embodied this notion that the minute a technology is invented, we're using it to connect with one another. And we have done that consistently ever since, whether it has been through online chats, through sharing of videos, through phone sex, through connected sex toys. Like we've been talking about this whole time. If if you and your partner are using a Max and a Nora, shout out to Levins. They don't sponsor us, but I'm a huge fan of their products in this respect. You know, if you and your partner are using Max and Nora, the, the um, integrated cyber um, toys, you are having a, an experience together without being physically present in a way that watching a video or looking at an, a black and white photograph can't provide. And what's really fascinating to me now is watching how we're starting again as humanity, as a species to involve beyond material at all, right? We're not even molding clay or taking pictures now. We're interacting with AI and we're forming relationships with holograms. We're moving <laughs> from humans and passive materials into humans and the immaterial where there's nothing tangible or present. And yet we're still forming these deep emotional and erotic connections. And that fascinates me as, as um, a clinician that concerns me a little bit as a researcher, as a sexologist. I'm not really sure what it says for our species when we reach a point where romantic and intimate fulfillment is possible in the absence of another human. I don't know yet whether that's good or bad, but I find the fact that we've reached that point fascinating. And that's why, you know, it, it seems kind of weird to have the, the, the social worker, the sex therapist going on and on about material science, but it's that piece that's most fascinating to me here. It's how we as humans, we as animals, we as a species connect with and interact with the materials that bring us pleasure, satisfaction, connection, in some cases, love. And I'm very intrigued to see what's going to happen as we move beyond the necessity of a material, corporeal form at all. And from a security perspective, you know, whenever there's a new technology, you said almost immediately it becomes eroticized. Whenever there's a new technology, we oftentimes start without defining the security. We oftentimes start with saying, oh, we're in a small town. It's no big deal. This is the Wild West and we're on the frontier. We'll get to that later. And so, especially if we, as we continue to look at some of these toys and some of these aspects, the security was not considered 
because people were hardwired and no one would have messed with it anyways. Now we're in a situation where everything's on the internet. It's very easy from anyone from anywhere to mess with it. And the knowledge needed to do that is, is much more common. So we've moved, we've moved out of the small towns, we moved into the big city, um, but we haven't yet adjusted uh, our street smarts. We haven't yet adjusted the technologies we build and how we build to accommodate for that. This is a really good topic, this intersection between technology and sexuality. And, uh, and I thank you, dear listener, for tuning in this week uh, to Securing Sexuality, your source for information like this, information you need to protect yourself and your relationships. From the toy on the bedroom to the server on the cloud, we are here to help you navigate safe sex in a digital age. Be sure to check out our website, securingsexuality.com, for links to more information about the topics we've discussed today, some of the toys I mentioned, and of course, um, our conference next fall. And join us again for more fascinating conversations around material science, uh, and more specifically, the intersection of sexuality and technology. Have a great week.